Paul McCartney in conversation with Paul Muldoon and all of us. What would the teenage Paul McCartney think of talking about his song lyrics in the Royal Festival Hall? Well, he wouldn't believe it. Um, yeah, what would I think? I, there's no way I would think that kind of thing at that age. Um, but if I, if someone said, you know, many years from now you will be at the Royal Festival Hall, uh, I would have been gobsmacked. Um, yeah, I mean, I only ever saw the Royal Festival Hall when there was things like coronations and stuff, you know, it was sort of stuff that came from London to us on the telly. <laughs> Other than that, uh, I had no experience of it, so yeah, I would have been totally gobsmacked. Welcome to this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm Martin Quibell. Well, in the news today, it turns out that one of those four dates out of the dozen that Ringo had said he's going to do is going to be in Hidalgo, Texas. Ooh, you're going to go and see Ringo again then, Ed? No, Hidalgo is a fair bit away. Hidalgo is just at the southern tip of Texas. It's a logical place for him to go. And there are still three shows, because he said he's going to be doing a dozen this time around. Six in the Vegas residency, two in Mexico City, now one in Hidalgo's. So there are going to be three more shows. And, and I would guess he's probably going to do either here or san antonio or austin in which case we may make it happen as a brit i didn't know how far it was because it's just one or two inches away on my uh, map book <laughs> it is a good three to five hundred miles something like that texas is a big state it's like a day's journey for some of you americans yeah exactly and i don't know what the cost of flights is to hidalgo i haven't actually been there i may have been there once driving through to the mexican border but i don't remember exactly it, i haven't been there for any length of time let's put it that way i've heard of the place but can't remember why i've heard of it that is nine shows he said he's doing a dozen assuming he actually means a dozen there are two days between the vegas show and the hidalgo show he, he may try and do one more show in texas i don't know when he's going to fit in those other two shows though 
Maybe he'll do one early before the Vegas residency and maybe one after Mexico City. Or maybe he'll just try and calm them down and have more space between them, just like Paul is doing with his concerts. Yeah, but he doesn't seem to need it. He's got the All-Stars, and he's only doing a dozen, 13, 14 songs in the show. So he can go for three, four, five nights in a row, it seems. Yeah, he's not doing around 38 songs a night like Paul. And he's not doing two, two and a half or three hours every night, so... Absolutely, with a really long sound check, apparently, as well, from what I've heard. Really long is debatable. The shortest is probably about 35 to 40 minutes. The long ones can run as much as 55 minutes to an hour. Like three Beatles concerts. So on to our topic for this week. We are picking up where I left off with Lonnie Pena on the McCartney Life and Lyrics podcast. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Yeah, and these are four really great episodes. One thing I will say, in the first run-through, we talked about the frequency and the length of the ad breaks. The frequency is the same, but they have actually gotten real sponsors, so they're not running these ridiculously long Pushkin spots in there. You'll get two or three commercials, but they only run maybe a minute or 90 seconds. You know, it's interesting you should mention that because... I've been listening to them again for this purpose of doing this show, and the adverts are not as many as they were when I first listened through to it. I've noticed that for sure. Early on, I think they actually didn't have that many real sponsors, and so they were running these Pushkin spots, and the Pushkin spots went 40, 45 seconds. Some of them even ran as long as a minute. These are all pre-produced commercial spots, radio-type spots and they are pretty tightly 30 to 35 seconds yeah i remember on the first listen through most of the episodes were over 30 minutes but that most recent one number eight was only 18 and a half minutes i will remind you that you can pay for a month's worth of pushkin for around seven bucks and get all of them and download all of them without any commercial breaks which is really nice Yeah, that is great. And we will be getting a second season real soon now. They haven't announced an exact date, but it's expected probably March or so. Yeah, looking forward to that. What songs are you hoping for, Ed? I would really like to see A Hope of Deliverance. Mm. I would love to hear Paul talk about that. Has he mentioned anything off Press to Play? Angry would be a fun one for him to talk about. It would, but yes. Would would he go into uh, mentioning about the recording it one way and then recording it another way or would it be just about the writing of the lyrics and him saying i was just wanting to get some anger out i think he'd find a way to tell the phil collins story though possibly and of course that's going to go back to the helter skelter and the pete towns and the the other thing i got from this listen through it's interesting how there are callbacks to various things in other episodes which I didn't really get so much the first time through. It's one of those shows that you can listen to again and again, like you're hinting at, and you get something different each time. I've said before, I like the fact that it is Paul's voice, and you can hear him in a situation where, as Paul Muldoon has said, it wasn't intended to be for a podcast. It was just for their own records and for the writing that they recorded it. So you've got them naturally there without the whole media of it all and as we were just discussing if you go back and you read exactly what is in the lyrics books this is what they used to 
generate the text in the lyrics books, but frequently the beginnings and the ends of quotes are not there in one or the other version. So you get the quotes a little bit longer here, or you might get them a little bit longer in the lyrics book. And I kind of like that as well. Yeah, and I like the fact that sometimes in the podcast versions, you sometimes get bits that aren't even in the lyrics and then vice versa as well. So you're getting slightly different things in each, and and I think they're really good accompaniments to each other. There is enough duplication between them that is clearly telling the same story. It tells it in a slightly different fashion. And then the other thing is they do the same thing that we do here, and we put in representative material, and I really like that a lot as well. Little clips of things. Episode 5, Penny Lane. It starts off with a little bit of a Dylan Thomas play, Under Milkwood, which was a, a BBC thing, and apparently... Paul may have listened to it. He recounts listening to the radio dramas while his mom was doing various things in the kitchen when he was a kid. I can believe that this would have been one of the things that Paul would have heard if it was around that sort of time. The era is certainly correct. Just a side issue for friends of mine who are fans or fellow fans of King Crimson. That's where the name Starless and Bible Black came from. Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas. To begin at the beginning. It is spring, moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible black, the cobble streets silent and the hunched quarters and rabbits wood limping invisible down to the slow black, slow black, crow black fishing boat bobbing sea. Oh, wow. Do you know anything more about this play? I never heard it. I'd never known anything about it. I actually want to go look it up now. I haven't got that much information about it, but it's strange because I have read it, the play. I've, I've actually got it in my bookcase at the back of me here, but I can't for the life of me remember that much about it. I should get back out and have another read, actually. So the reason they mention that, and they use this as an introduction to Paul talking about Penny Lane, is it's a very character-driven story. Yeah, I, I like that this episode looks into that side of Paul's writing with the characters. Didn't John used to have a bit of an issue with it sometimes, or used to take the rise out of Paul, shall we say, for his character songs? It very much was what John Lennon would describe as granny music, not necessarily Penny Lane, but the character, the writing of fictional people, particularly in the... The Rolling Stone interview. You know, he talks about how how he just doesn't like that, and how I just want to write about myself. John had a habit of saying things, and then he'd say something completely different in a later interview. And he, as he admits, ask me again in five minutes, and I'll tell you something completely different. Yep, absolutely. The wonder of John. <laughs> we move on from there to Paul just talking a little bit about the origins of Penny Lane. One of the things I kind of wondered: you look at the map. Mendips to Paul's house was less than a mile. 4,525 feet is what Google Maps tells us. Why would Paul take the bus, which goes up and around, and it's a good three, three and a half mile journey to get to Mendips when he could just walk it? I mean, you know, weather, of course, but is that just the way it was? How far did you say? A mile and a half? No, 4,525 feet, five-sixths of a mile. Oh. Okay. That's the long way around. Apparently, it was barely more than three quarters of a mile if you cut across the golf course. 
Okay. I've walked a lot further than that for journeys before. That's for sure. I just find it a little bit odd that Paul would, at least sometimes, take the bus over to John's house. I remember years ago, I used to walk over two miles to a record shop, a specific one, every payday to go and buy some old record from this specific shop. So that was over two miles walking just to go to buy a record or or five. The bus trip around was apparently like two and a half miles. And Paul actually describes the streets that it went down. It went over by the roundabout in Penny Lane. I mainly remember it as being where I would I would get a bus to Penny Lane in order to go to John's house. But if you could walk there or you could take a two and a half mile bus trip, which would you choose? I mean, we both agree. It's like, and weather would certainly play a role into it. If it's too cold or if it's rainy or something, you might want to just catch the bus. But still, in general, and we know that John certainly did that, that, that he walked up and around. Yeah, I, I would have just walked it in four minutes or five minutes. <laughs> And I have to say, there was an activity scene up the street from me, and I was walking around, and I looked at it, it's like, you know, John Lennon was right. This really does look like the people playing cards. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and just a question for those of you, why would Paul have taken it as frequently as he did, particularly since he seems to have remembered it so? There's a possibility that Paul was maybe people-watching on the bus, could be. A lot of us have been inspired with our own songwriting, you know, people watching, essentially. So maybe that's what something that Paul was enjoying doing, just sitting on the bus and watching people's lives, essentially. Well, Elvis Costello is very well known for that. He frequently talks about how he just likes to sit there and eavesdrop on people and just write phrases that he hears from random passersby. Yeah, so that's a possibility. So it goes into the lyrics of Penny Lane. There's a brief description of Paul saying that he really liked the phrase showing photographs. That is not what you would normally think of when you're talking about, here's pictures of the haircuts you could get. It's more like an art display. Given his history, not just the Jane Asher history, his history with Sue Sutcliffe and the various other artists that he was around through those years, it would have meant something to him. Yeah, I do like that. That basically is is saying that it's almost like a gallery in a sense and an exhibition. We've all been to these hairdressers or barber shops where the photographs are on the wall and we'll go, oh, we'll have one of those, like Paul said. But the way that it is, it's he's doing a Milo de Venus there, isn't it? That, of course, reminds me of, I'm sure you've seen it, there's that picture of the barber shop from 64, which has all those pictures, and right in the middle, no beetle haircuts. <laughs> Yes. The barber had had enough of it, so. Oh, dear. I like the description from Paul Muldoon. The inner pictures and characters from the street of McCartney's childhood are projected with hallucinogenic clarity. Yes. I thought that was a really nice turn of phrase. There's a reason why he's a poet laureate. <laughs> The tray of poppies and Paul commenting on how we here in the States often misheard it as a tray of puppies, which is a pretty amusing image. Yes, that is funny. And it's all about Remembrance Sunday. Which, while it's a thing here, I believe it was Veterans Day here in the States. It was much less of a thing. Of course, World War I was much less of a thing here in the States. 
Absolutely. Big thing for us, of course. The firemen, I found it a little bit odd they didn't find a place to talk about the firemen when they're talking about the firemen. Yeah, why didn't they mention in passing about the project, the firemen with youth? Because, you know, the fireman rushes in. The It's a Clean Machine, they described it as slightly ominous. I've always heard it as kind of a masturbation reference. You never know. (laughs) Mm. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And I'm not the only one who's heard it that way. Okay. At at least Paul Simon admits to it with, you can can call me Al, is it? Why am I short of attention? The Mac, which is not a term that we use here in the States. Charles McIntosh was the creator of the material, and that is why they are referred to as Macs. I didn't know that either. I know it was short for a Macintosh coat, but I didn't know Charles Macintosh either. No. And we get something which is going to become more and more prevalent, not just through these episodes, through the rest of the series. We get a bit of Paul clapping along while I guess he and Paul Modulin are just listening to the song. That's really kind of cool. It's a play. It's a play. It's a little play. Yes. Is, are there some bits in this where they're from sessions? For sure, there absolutely are. He's doing the voice things for like when he talks about the play. I, I love how he talks about playing in the studio. So we're just kind of getting out of the lyrics and what is Paul talking about. And it kind of ends with that little bit with Paul clapping and singing along. It sounds like they had a tape of the final version and Paul is just... Having tremendous fun. Yeah, but we've seen footage of Paul being like that in the studio with other recordings as well over the years where he's just there making things up and having fun with it. Well, 3-2-1 for sure. That whole special is nothing but Paul clapping and singing along to Beatles songs. Yes, that's true. So then they go into the under Milkwood aspect of the song. Paul Muldoon is trying to compare it to Eleanor Rigby. And while I can get that a little bit, you know, there is a bit of the characters being similar. I don't really find them similar in theme or in aspect at all, to be honest with you. No, perhaps Paul Muldoon was suggesting that they were similar to radio plays that he would have listened to. So it goes on from there to the scene that he and Jane Asher were part of. And you'll notice that Paul is a little bit coy at first. And then he finally says, oh, you know, F it. It's Jane Asher. Here's what we were doing at the time. And I was going out with an actress. Yes, of course. I so we would go regularly to the National Theatre. Yes, Paul, we know that. I noticed Paul Muldoon was the first one to say Jane. At the time of writing Penny Lane, Paul McCartney had become very interested in the London art scene. He was also dating the actress Jane Asher, which might have influenced the theatrical nature of the song. It was almost like Muldoon was trying to get a bit more out of Paul. Uh, He does that frequently through the series. Yeah. This is definitely one of the more leading times. As we know, Paul is not one to talk about Jane Asher very much. You know, he'll talk about Peter Asher, or he'll talk about living in the Asher household, but Jane is kind of, well, you know, there was that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get more of Asher talk as we continue through these four episodes. You know, listening to these recordings, it's almost like it would be interesting to hear what order they discussed these songs in. 
in a way, as opposed to how they were released. Because I'm wondering if this was early in their discussions, because there's more mention of Jane elsewhere in the book and in the podcast. And we can tell some of the order. You can certainly tell what's the Zoom stuff in the middle, because that is a distinctly different sound quality to it. But what specifically is early at the very beginning and what they sort of picked up at the end that was late, it's a little bit hard to tell. Yeah. So Paul McCartney then talks about the people that were at these parties, uh, painters, <laughs> actors, sculptors, musicians, playwrights, all these people in on your scene. I, I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, particularly because you know we've heard him talk about Bertrand Russell, for example, as also kind of being a person who was around the scene at that time. Yeah, I'm trying to think who else he uh, mentioned, the wife of them as well. That is Harold Penter. Oh, yes, that's Pinter himself. Harold Pinter is here. The New York Times has called him, quote, one of the most important playwrights of our time. With plays such as The Caretaker, The Homecoming, and Betrayal, he has revolutionized theater. His blending of language and silence has influenced many playwrights. This summer, the Lincoln Center Festival celebrates Pinter as a playwright, an actor, a director, and a screenwriter. Nine of his 29 plays and eight of his numerous films will be presented during the festival. And Vivian Merchant is his yeah. wife. And so another chance for us to mention the uh, Patrick Stewart book. Because, I mean, Patrick Stewart also would have been one of those figures that would have been around at the time. Yes, because uh, Patrick Stewart's mentioned about being around at this time and driving Paul's car. We'll yeah. get to that because that is very specifically involved in episode eight. Oh, yes. Yep. <laughs> A little bit more singing and uh, snapping along. You're playing, you know, it's, it's very important to play. People say to me, why do you work so hard? I say, I don't work music, I play it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whilst that is a kind of, kind of glib statement, mm -hmm. I say it because it's really true. Sure. I mean, Come. obviously in the two meanings of playing music, playing an instrument, but playing is really important. The ones who can play are more successful. You mean play in the sense of playing playing games? Muck about. Mucking about, yeah. You know, it's a good thing. Somebody could do that, you know, if they suddenly decide that it needs it there. You know, so this idea of just playing around. This seems to be an excerpt of another clip that I've heard where he's specifically talking about how Ringo played on Penny Lane. But th that bit is not here. Which is a shame because I think Ringo was exemplary on this song. His, his playing is fantastic. Paul recognized it, but I mean, you know, whether it was for time or whether it was because Paul wanted to be a little bit oblique about the Beatles stuff, it's not here. Okay. Mm, I don't know why that would be. It may have been a different conversation which led out of this one. It's like, oh yeah, that was Ringo's idea. That was really, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we don't know. No. 
Again, it would be really nice if they would just release the whole thing. I mean, they're not going to do it, but just release all of the audios. Put it on the web. Let people go through it and listen to what they want. But that's not Paul's way. No. Just in passing, I don't think there's enough uh, mention of the fact that towards this period of time, Paul would record his bass after everything else or close to the end of it all. And that was based around what Ringo put down, essentially, so that Paul's locking into what Ringo had already put down a long while beforehand. For Pepper in particular, that was a big deal. Yeah. The familiar story about Paul seeing the Brandenburg Concerto and going to George Martin and getting David Mason in the studio, although I like this telling of it. Yes, I like this as well. I think Paul's more, as in McCartney, is more open to going into more detail and not being the usual anecdotes by being so comfortable in the situation. I think that makes it a better story. Yeah, he's telling the story rather than just, here's anecdote number 95 for you. (laughs) I love Paul to bits, but sometimes I I liken his stories to uh, anybody that watches NCIS, uh, Gibbs Rules on NCIS. (laughs) Yeah. Once he gets past the, here's David Mason with us in the studio, and here's us having to actually write down the part for him, the description is, I just did a little, I played. A ridiculously high note, and then the, and David Mason said, well, that's out of the range of the piccolo, tr- even the piccolo trumpet, which is a high, high, high trumpet. Mm-hmm. So that's out of the range, and which we had a little playful moment. We just looked at each other. <laughs> and he sort of, I'm giving him a kind of, yeah, but you could probably do it, you? <laughs> smile. And he's giving me back, you bastard, <laughs> smile. Kind of, yeah, I probably could. <laughs> Like we've said before plenty of times, you know, you've got Paul McCartney here, natural, so there are some choice words. That's not one of the worst words that he uses in this series. Oh, no. We've heard similar stories about how both David Mason and other piccolo trumpet players have cursed that day because that's all anybody ever wants. They want that note. And then it ends with a a little bit of discussion on the music video, which, of course, is now back in vogue since now and then, where they excerpt that in there. Yes. I like the fact he goes into the Sgt. Pepper film as well, and he mentions about videos and people make their own images up for songs or their own ideas for what songs are about. But haven't they essentially done that making the video for Penny Lane? Kind of, but Paul is right. You select one image and it's never going to be enough. And and that is, in fact, how he then ends the episode, that everyone can look at something and see something different. Sad, dramatic, funny. I'm fascinated by that idea. Everyone's perception is different. We hung on to that, and that may have been because we grew up without television. We, meaning, you know, that whole generation. Their growing up was by radio, as they didn't have television, so it was all about listening to the radio and almost making your own pictures up to go with what you heard. And that's kind of the theme which runs through this episode, episode five. So, okay, we move on to episode six, Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. Yes. 
we've heard the stories about Uncle Albert <laughs> climbing up on the table and reading the Bible, although I hadn't necessarily known that Albert was in the same cotton firm as Jim McCartney. No, I didn't know that either. He also hinted at the fact that Uncle Albert would often come to forget-togethers and, in Paul's words, they would get um, pissed, which in English is to get drunk. Yeah, he describes them as being piss artists. Yes. And then the other thing is that Uncle Albert lived in Birkenhead, which Paul just says is, oh, well, that was the posh bit of Liverpool. <laughs> he would have hung out with the Epsteins, huh? Who knows? <laughs> As I was saying, this is actually a lot like some of the discussion we had for Penny Lane. Here he is talking about his family and what those get-togethers were, were like. And again, he mentioned the playing music aspect. And he says that whenever he got together with his family at that time, you know, it was a lot of jokes and songs, just a lot of play. And that how he had felt nostalgia for that. It doesn't go into the play aspect with this song quite as much as I thought it could have done because I've always thought that this song has a lot of, shall we say, playing about in it with all of the instrumentation in this and the little bits that gives it that almost surreal sound to it. This is where Paul Muldoon decided to lead the conversation. It would have been equally valid to do that, I think. Yeah. Then we got a quote from their discussion where they say, well, the McCartneys weren't directly affected by the war, which kind of made me go, wait a minute. The whole reason that Paul's dad, James McCartney, and his mother, Mary, got together was because of a World War II bombing. Uh, yes. <laughs> I call that being directly affected by the war. So would I. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most interesting achievements of the council was to establish, over a hundred years ago, public wash houses, where even now thousands of Liverpool housewives bring their weekly wash. I'm not sure whether that's necessarily the best thing to include here. You know, I guess they're just kind of including it as a bit of nostalgia, a bit of old Liverpool, as it were. It's interesting because where we live now, because my family are from this area, we still had a public baths where people went for washing, it was still open when I was in my teens in the 1980s. As much as 20 years later, or 30 years later, it was still there, huh? Yes, it was still there, which I was surprised about as a child, because I kept saying, oh, what's that then? And then, you know, my, my mum would say, or my family would say, oh, that's public baths where people go to, you know, and clean up. And I would say, well, haven't they got their own bathrooms at home? We've heard that story before. Uh, Ringo, they had a bath, so they must have been posh again. The posh part of Liverpool. Okay. <laughs> I lived in a posh house then. <laughs> <laughs> we get a little bit more. Muldoon kind of leads them on to talk about the business of leaving Liverpool and sort of moving to London and, and having things change in his life for them. Paul McCartney has a really nice quote there that the distance builds and he is feeling a little bit ambivalent about that distance. I don't want that distance, but that's like saying you don't want anyone to die. It's part of life. Yeah, there's almost a realization of it. But then again, is that Paul saying that now or is that Paul thinking that in retrospect and adding that little bit at the end? It's certainly 70X-year-old man looking back on being 20 years old and moving out of your hometown. Because I don't, I don't think I would have thought about death when I was in my 20s, I don't think. 
again talks about how when he was in London that the family would periodically come in and check in on him. Talks about his Auntie Jen, the infamous Auntie Jen. We all love Auntie Jen. We do. That's a nice hat. Coming south to spy on him. <laughs> She'd been sent down. She was, they called her, they used to call her control. <laughs> She'd been sent down as an emissary. And now who would have sent her down? Who, who would have been sent The family. The family. The extended family. Who knows which one or how many. Mm. Uh, I don't know really. I think, you know, the word had just got back that our Paul's going a bit wild in London, you know, so go and check him out, Ginny. <laughs> Agent Ginny to the rescue. <laughs> As Paul described it, they'd heard about the sin of smoking pot. I laughed at that. I've laughed at that both times I've heard that story now. Given the time period, that's also, you know, right about when Paul would have been admitting on the telly that he took acid. Yes, you could almost imagine one of the family having the television on and then suddenly that being on there and being, oh dear, what's our Paul up to now? (laughs) Exactly. It moves on from there to what you were looking forward to earlier, where Paul is kind of talking about the song. It's all evident in the accents he does during the course of the tune. Yeah, always a favorite part of mine where you've got the different voices and the different characters essentially in the song, I think. This is awfully reminiscent of what we just heard in the previous episode about Paul building up those characters in Penny Lane. This really is, oh wow, it's definitely the same guy telling different stories, talking about different songs, but they then tie into each other so perfectly. I mean, I've often listened to this song, and when he does those voices, like the butter pie, the butter pie, and and all these things, I've always thought, if they were still together at this point, I think John Lennon and probably George and Ringo would have had so much fun doing all of these voices. Look at You Know My Name, look up the number. I mean, you know. Absolutely. That's what that whole song is about, so. And, you know, Hey Bulldog, when they do all the, you know, whoa, 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 and all those sort of things, yeah. (laughs) So Paul goes on, I go into character, very arrogant, posh guy. Well, well, we've got another life here, and I'm afraid I'm dismissing you, Paul, Paul Muldoon <laughs> then commenting. Well, you know, the shift of accent is enough to let you know. That's true, that you've gone into a different character or well, a different mood. I like the fact that they say that in the first verse, it's almost like the young person who's just left home and, oh, we're so sorry, Uncle Albert. And it's sort of almost like dismissive and young. And then when they get to the second verse, he said there's almost an an, an arrogance, I think he says. And that's how you've got that slightly posh voice there is that, you know, it, it is dismissive because it's like, I know where I am now and I'm really sorry, but we can't talk to you right now and that sort of thing. And now it changes according through the song. Here, I think Paul Muldoon may be a little bit off the track where you know he starts talking about oh well even being a beetle fame and glamour were starting to lose its luster it's like really i don't quite see that so much as you do no it serves as a transition we go into the hands across the water heads across the sky and paul says well you know that was a linda thing and it works for me as kind of an anglo-american kind of thing i thought that was an astute observation Yes, I noticed that. Then we get a little bit about the actual Admiral Halsey, and they play an interview clip. We have knocked down our planes. We have burned them. We have drowned them. And they're just as pleasant to burn as they are to drown. 
In contrast, it's actually very funny, although it's not a funny clip. Oh, it's just basically tell you how much the real Admiral Halsey was a hard war kind of guy. Yes, as Mr. Muldoon said, definitely not a nursery rhyme, children's story type of person. Then we move on to the butter wouldn't melt. So we put it in the pie and Paul says, well, that was all Linda's doing. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't give Danny Lane credit, but he'll give Linda credit. <clears throat> yes, yes, we've, we've already had this with Mull of Kintyre. This is sort of me and Linda at that time. This is sort of what we did. We had things to get away from. For me, it was... Apple business, Alan Klein takeovers and all of that. Yeah. And then a bit which plays a lot more sad for me nowadays, having read Ken Womack's book, Paul is telling the story. Well, I wanted to go buy my own Christmas tree, so I did. Rebels with a sense of humor and talking about how Linda then had to figure out how to do things for Paul. What was she doing? She was doing what Mal Evans used to do for Paul. Yes. Essentially, Ken Walmart goes into that a bit in his book, and that just kind of made me sad to hear him talk about it in this way. Yeah, I don't need you now, but that he said to Mal, yeah. Ken explains it, and Paul had to do it, but it's still kind of sad, and well, we all wish that it kind of ended slightly differently. Yes, we do. Then it ends with Paul talking about some of the people he's met in his life, Thatcher and Barack Obama, and how... Ultimately, he comes back to it, and he finds that his Liverpool family was, to him, better. In this bit, was there a section from a demo version of this song? Rebels with a sense of humour. There's no one left home and I've been eating on the way. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So we do a macaroni turkey. It's like mac and cheese, but it goes solid, and then we slice it. And we'd have that as our macaroni turkey. Paul and Linda managed to cut free and establish not only a new family, but a creative partnership. I don't know what it is. You know, it's a little comedy bit from one of the songs. That's what I'm saying. They seem to be putting in these things. They don't tell you what these things are. Some of them were very clearly outtakes. This may be something that Paul has recorded while they were talking, or it may be an actual outtake. You can't tell. No, not mean to sound awful, but his voice almost sounds of the time back then, as opposed to... The next time we talk to Alan Cozen, we'll have to ask him, but, I mean, he knows that there are all these little bits and scraps which ended up going together into the song. This may well have been something that Paul had on a tape. So, here, you can use this. Yeah. He concludes, his family was better because their sense of humor was ridiculous, and, you know, they just got out of a bloody war. Yes. Again, it gives us some real insight into the way Paul McCartney thinks. He did. As does the next episode. We are into episode seven, which is easily the saddest because of its content. It's here today. It starts with Paul Muldoon introducing some news clips from December the 8th, 1980. And well, it can't help but be a little bit tragic. I think it's something that both me and you can remember from that time. I'd just turned 10 years old when John died, and I actually remember all of the the news footage and was quite sad uh, about it, even as a 10-year-old. Well, yeah, recently turned 10 years old. It was quite really sad. So once we get to Paul McCartney, he describes this as a love song for John, which is really nice. I don't think I've ever heard him describe it in quite those words anywhere else. 
yeah, a memory song that is a love song to John. And like you said, that was really lovely. But, you know, I, I like the fact that Paul's also honest during this and says that John would definitely not say that word about somebody. That shows the difference between them both, really. And so it leads down to a bit of stream of consciousness. I find it particularly interesting what is in the lyrics book that they did not include here. At the end of his list of things, front parlors, bedrooms, and hitchhiking, in the lyrics book, he continues, long journeys together, which had nothing to do with the Beatles. Yes. I think that's kind of an important part of that phrase, and for whatever reason, they chose to cut it. It doesn't go into as much detail as it does in the book. That then leads to a slightly confused story about coming up with the song in Sussex, whether it was supposed to be on the afternoon of December 8th. I mean, we know what that day was. We know that Paul went into the studio and he was there with George Martin and Denny Lane. And not mentioned here, Denny Lane had a fabulous story about what that day was. Fabulous is not quite the way to put it, but a heartbreaking, fabulous story about that day. Wouldn't that be December the 9th, the next day? In Britain, yes. Yeah. What Denny Lane describes, and is not part of this episode, but maybe should be, was they just really couldn't get anything together work-wise. And so later on in the afternoon, he and Paul just kind of went upstairs at MPL, and were looking out these giant glass windows, and what would pass by but a moving man with Lennon's on the side of it. Wow. Yeah, that session, they had all the chap from the Chieftains, didn't they, that day to do yep. uh, the Hulian pipes for Rain Clouds. Paul continues with this story about composing the song, and he plays a little bit. Wrote this, and it started, as all stuff does with me, we're finding uh, something nice on the guitar, a good chord or something. It's just such a lovely chord. It's not A, but kind of... I don't know what it is, actually. He talks about how he got... How when he writes a song, he typically starts with a chord progression, which sounds nice to him. And then he plays the opening chord, and, and, and he sits there and thinks about it. It's a lovely chord, but I don't know what it is. It's not an A. It does that a lot. It does that. Well, it's a variation of an A, but I can't remember off the top of my head what it actually is. But um, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how Paul just he 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 does these things because he did it with Dance Tonight, where he's sort of like explaining with that, and he said, "I have no idea what I'm playing, but it works." Well, and then going back, the business about what court is on the Picasso painting. Yes. In the hospital. Yep. So yeah. So Muldoon leads him on with the obvious antecedent of this would be the phrase, here today, gone tomorrow. And Paul just kind of cuts him off. Well, yeah, I knew that. And I didn't want the last part. I just wanted the front bit. Yeah. But I can understand Paul saying I don't want that last bit because, I mean, it's sad enough as it is without adding that to it as well then paul kind of channels george a little bit john was a little bit older than me he was still a little bit older than me i never caught up 
<laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> yes, I like that as well. George says that in the um, Beatles anthology, doesn't it? He's always said he it. Always says you know, that, and he's still Paul, eight yeah. months older than yeah. me. He's still eight months older than me. Yeah, yeah. And he tells a version of the real first time he met John. He's not telling the Walton Fate story. He's not telling the other version, which is in all likelihood, the genuine first time he met John, which was in line at a chip shop. Before we get past it, I'll just say that I do like the fact that his home studio is actually built where he supposedly wrote the song. I do like that. What about the time we met? Well, first time I ever saw John Lennon, he got on the bus, and he's John always managed to be a little bit older than me. I never caught up. So he was like this sort of slightly older guy with a sort of rocker hairdo, lots of grease, black jacket, sideburns, sideboards, as we called them. Burns was American. And, you know, I just remember thinking, well, he's a cool guy. No idea who he is. <laughs> yeah, that was the thing, you know. Was, is this guy really a teddy boy or is he just got a guy dressing up like a teddy boy? You wouldn't want to go anywhere near a real teddy boy. Uh, no, you would not. No, not with a the razor blade. Mm. Yeah. A question I've always had, you know, Paul frequently talks about this, uh, this afternoon or this evening where he was, you know, talking to John and it's like, oh, I write songs. It's like, yeah, well, I write some songs too. When did that happen? W- would that have been uh, backstage of the Walton Fade or would that have been some other time? When, where would, where and when would they have gotten together? Um, I don't know. I mean, I thought the same thing. I thought was it after the Walton Fate afterwards, but then I'm thinking, I'm not sure that they would have had quite that relationship that quickly, to be honest. It could be. It could be that he'd already invited Paul into the band and they were backstage at some point. It's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I've been writing some songs. He's like, oh, well, you know, because they're act would have been covers at that when they are actually working together and and then paul mentions about <laughs> stealing his father's uh, pipe and putting tea leaves in there <laughs> yeah and he actually mentions the particular type of tea that they put in there mark lewis in the intro to tune in he has a long bit about that and that's particularly amusing if you don't have the book what can we say pick up tune in and get us volume two, Mark. Yes, volume two, please. What type of tea was it? Tea doesn't mean what tea used to mean. Okay. Blame it on the Ruddles. Yes. Then Paul continues in his usual fashion about the great thing about playing and writing with John was that it was like looking in a mirror. It was like the two personalities as well worked together, like they were almost looking at each other, essentially. And then Paul goes into what he remembers and what he thinks about John. I'm conscious that I don't have him very much. My songs have to reflect me, and you don't have this opposing element so much. I have to do it myself these days. Working with John was easier, much easier. There were two minds at work, and that interplay was nothing short of miraculous. But then Paul also mentions about John having a guarded personality as well. That then goes into the line you were mentioning earlier that it's the only line that he doesn't think that John would actually say that you'd probably laugh and say that we were worlds apart. Yes. He tells the getting better story again as well. It's acceptable here. I mean, it's part of what he's talking about. It fits in the discussion. It's not just, here's an anecdote for you. Paul essentially says that, you know, in the song getting better, or it's getting better all the time that, 
anybody else would probably go, yes, it is, yes, it is. Whereas John says, well, he couldn't get any worse. Just that little bit in the middle informs the story in an interesting way. Because I don't think I've ever heard Paul quite say, oh, well, here's what anybody else would do. Yes. He could have said, it's getting better all the time. Yes, indeed, it is. So he continues with John and John's sarcastic nature, how that was one of the things that attracted him to John, which is another thing that it's really cool to hear Paul say this. Yeah, there's one bit that sticks out to me that I really, really made me smile, where Paul was saying about, you know, John could be caustic with people and they'd have big disagreements and it almost make Paul really sad sometimes and it, it should really get him down sometimes when he went to a certain degree and then he said about you know John having this thing where he'd lower his glass in and he'd just go it's only me and that bit just made me smile I thought that was lovely and he's told variations on that story as well but hearing him actually yeah. say it what about the night we cried because there wasn't any reason left to keep it all inside never understood One stormy night in Key West, while the Beatles were on tour, the shield dropped altogether. What about the night we cried? That was a specific incident in Key West. There was a hurricane coming in, and we had to lay low for a couple of uh, days, and for some reason, they chose Key West. You know, the hurricane story and, and getting tremendously drunk. I mean, he's also told versions of that story elsewhere. Yes. But again, it's, it's nice to have it here. Yeah, getting drunk at Key West. Yeah. So related to what you were just mentioning, that the thing about John Lennon and the thing that he noted in himself was attack before you get attacked. Yeah. The phrase that Paul Muldoon said was stoic machismo. <laughs> yes. Boys don't cry. And he goes into that a little bit, how that wasn't really how his dad was. That was just how a male was raised at the time. Absolutely. Paul's phrase is, God wouldn't have given us tears if he didn't mean us to cry. I, I thought that was kind of eloquent. That actually could be a song in and of itself, you know? It could. I've, I've heard a song called that, actually. Which is part of a, a conversation, you know, not only that boys don't cry, but boys don't demonstrate any affection to each other particularly at the time the only way you could do that is if you were a homosexual different times whenever you were talking about anything soppy someone would have to make a joke of it that was the attitude i've been in that situation before where i've said things or whatever and they'll be like oh and then suddenly you have a joke to try and offset yeah that difficult situation or potential difficult situation and then to kind of end it, we get a little Nurk Twins story. We get a bit about them hitchhiking. Of course, Paul's first hitchhiking buddy was George. He was. Of course, they get to ride and Paul has to make a ticket to ride reference. Of course. Bet and Mike Robbins, you got a little bit about them. So he would go there and his Auntie Betty and his Uncle Mike, they worked at Butlin's. And he mentions that their children, that they're a very entertainment family, the Robins. So in case anybody's interested, Betty and Mike, they would have four children who all ended up going into acting, singing and entertainment. Ted Robbins, who's been a game show host, actor, comedian and entertainer. And Kate Robbins, actress, comedian, and a singer who's got some really good albums out. One of her albums, So Nights, that's got some really good covers of a couple of Beatles songs people might have heard. 
and she's also a backing singer on Press to Play. So Paul continues mentioning that uh, Mike Robbins had actually been on the BBC. He was he was a very funny guy and musical. He'd been in a sort of an a cappella singing group with Zoot Suits mm-hmm. called I think the Jones Boys. And we listened to them on the radio once. Carl. Really? So they that that recorded? They, they were on? Once on the radio. Mm-hmm. And we all, the whole family tuned in, you know. Mm-hmm. I collected clippings of them. If only we could get that song to be able to just clip it in here right now. <laughs> Paul was looking back on he and John being uh, top to tail in, in a single bed, and and Bet would come and tuck them in. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of <laughs> just kind of funny. It is. Then to close out the episode, we get you know various quotes from Paul talking about what life with. John was like, but you also get a bunch of intros, some of which came out of the rock band game, but some of which sound new to me. One, two, three, four. Play it again. Yeah. Ringo. Ringo, stop. That's not me. All right, we're going to make the last bit. Take four. Would you promise to be true? John. And help me. John. Understand. I'm tired. I'll be back and tell me why and, you know, lots of little things. Yeah, I like these outtakes and on all these. Um, we could do with these on the um, deluxe editions, please. <laughs> Hopefully we will have them because all of these are from albums we haven't gotten yet. Yes, that's why I'm crossing my fingers. Beatles for Sale and Hard Day's Night, yes. I think some of these are in the Rock Band game, but not all of them for sure. So, a very sad episode, but it has to be. And I guess they had to include it. And incidentally, I saw Paul do this at uh, Birmingham for the Out There tour, and I really enjoyed Paul doing here today, just with him and the acoustic guitar. And I think I've said before that sometimes his, his aged voice gives it a bit more of a vulnerability. Paul goes out with having John pass was a powerful loss. So to have a conversation with him in a song was some form of solace. Somehow I was with him again. And again, hearing Paul's description of it being stuck out in the middle of a great big arena, you know, it kind of makes you imagine that maybe why he's stuck with the set design. This bit of, oh, I'm going to climb up on the stage and the stage is going to raise up into the rafters and, and take me up just as high as I can possibly go for these two songs. Yeah, it's not a bad thing at all. He seems to be doing these little bits in his sets now, which I really do like, where he's got that and then he does a song for George and I'm, I'm assuming now that he'll be doing you know a song for Danny Lane as well. Well, we'll see. I mean, he he hasn't added one yet. So he closes with, it's a a very emotional, nostalgic, sentimental song. And, you know, he's right. He is more than willing to take credit for it here, whereas sometimes he doesn't want that. We move on to episode eight, Live and Let Die. Slightly cheesy, Paul Modun is trying to make Paul McCartney up as James Bond. He's McCartney, Paul McCartney, a commander, a hero, a man of action. Everything you've ever loved in a Bond show. Anne calls in from the Secret Intelligence Service with a mission, a commission, to write a song before it's too late. 
yeah, I don't know if I needed that quite so much. Yeah, that bit did niggle me a bit, actually, the introduction. That goes into Live and Let Die. We get a bit of the radio spot that they played for the Live and Let Die film. Paul is given a title and the book of Live and Let Die to write a theme song, even though, as I've pointed out, the book and the film actually don't tell the same story. I think there's just a couple of set pieces which come out of the book. Yes. This leads to a bit of Paul talking about the difference between being tasked to write a song or a poem or having one come out of your own inspiration. At one point, he says he sometimes thought about being a writer for hire, and this was possibly a chance of him being able to do it, essentially. Yeah, and there's also a bit of a poem for the Queen, apparently. And this is kind of an interesting bit of who is James Paul McCartney? You know, if we needed a table, I'll build one. That would give me weeks, months of pleasure, just creating it, figuring out how I would make it. Nice. He can make me a table whenever he likes. (laughs) (laughs) And then you can sell it for a lot more money. (laughs) This then leads to them talking a little bit about the Bond history. And Paul Muldoon asks him if Paul McCartney still has the Aston Martin. The Aston Martin is the one that he let Patrick Stewart drive. If if anybody's interested, the Aston Martin is still around. On a Facebook post, someone posted, the document is still available online. You can look it up, and it's still registered, although it's not owned by Paul anymore. The radio DJ, not the actor Chris Evans, he bought it off Paul, and then seven years ago, it sold for £1.35 million. And it probably has a couple pounds more now that we know Patrick Stewart drove it. While Paul McCartney made out with Jane Asher in the backseat. Was he driving and telling Paul and Jane to make it so? No, I shouldn't have gone there. Sorry. So he tells the story of how he came to write the song. Uh, He mentions Ron Cass, and and that's really kind of cool. Well, particularly because at that point in time, Paul was not the happiest with Apple. Yet he was still talking to Ron Cass. Was it a case of him having to stay in touch with these people because he was still signed to Apple, so occasionally he'd have to have involvements with them? The optimal phrase there was George Harrison, you're effing staying with Apple, Hare Krishna. Yes. (laughs) So it was Ron Cass who had the connection to the Bond people. It was Ron Cass who said, you wouldn't actually want to write a Bond song with you. And I like Paul's comment. Well, yeah. But I responded not trying to look too enthusiastic. Yeah, playing hard to get Paul. (laughs) And this is kind of interesting. As he goes into a description of the lyrics, I just wanted it to be let it go. It kind of wrote itself, which is really interesting. You know, we had the let it be episode. He kind of says the same thing there. He's got the initial idea of, you know, the live and let live and the live and let die and that. And then he's essentially saying that he's just making everything up as he goes along from that almost free association or just allowing it to be. He's playing again with his songwriting. Not just into an episode that we previously had here, but also back to the Let It Be episode. It's the way Paul McCartney thinks about things. Although, you know, you know, we talked about Linda. We know Linda wrote the reggae bit in the middle. He doesn't mention that here. No, that's something else where I mentioned it about the book as well, that he doesn't mention at all that she wrote that reggae middle eight. So Paul read the book and then he started writing the song and he goes, how is this going to land? I see where I am and this is the world I'm in. And then he goes to George Martin. 
And as he says, they finessed it into a bold, bond-worthy hit. That's really an interesting statement. Again, this kind of goes back to Paul and George Martin writing The Family Way. Did George Martin have more to do with the construction of Live and Let Die than we've ever known? Well, he explains something about George suggesting that George did this bit or created this bit. So, I mean, if we went into the modern credits that people get nowadays for songwriting, as John Stone would remind us, should this really be a McCartney-McCartney-Martin co-write? Quite possibly. Although I don't quite completely get what he's saying. Paul is saying that the orchestra bit is his, and then there's a little bit of an instrumental bit before the reggae bit, and that's what George Martin contributed? I don't quite see how the pieces Paul's talking about go together. No, although saying that, there is a lot going on musically on this in this song, that's for sure. And if you want to learn more about the recording of this song, again, go to Alan Cozen's book. There's a really tremendous chapter, not quite a full chapter, but there's at least a significant chunk of a chapter talking about running between the studios. It niggles me that then Paul goes into the <clears throat> incorrect story about, um, you know, the acetate being taken to Cubby Broccoli in Jamaica. Before we get to that, there's a very echoey sort of demo-y sound. Is this an outtake or is this something that's fake? I can't tell. After the riff is played, there's a central middle instrumental bit, which was pure George and... Uh, I was very happy with that. So it was a, it was a good experience. They recorded it in George Martin's studio above Oxford Circus. I don't know. It is very much almost like just a run-through or, or a first attempt, almost a rehearsal of the piece. Because at a certain point, you can hear backing vocals. Is it an underdub mix now that that's a thing that Paul's doing for us? Who knows? But it's interesting and it is worth listening for. What is this weird little thing? And as you know, with the Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey bit, it doesn't sound like current Paul. It sounds like 1970s Paul. Yes, exactly. Yep. I keep noticing that as well. It then moves into the story which you were telling. Interesting that Paul mentions that it's being recorded in George Martin's studios above Oxford Circus. He doesn't use the Air Studios name. No, I noticed that as well. We've got this weird little description here. In the lyrics book, it is wrong. Yes. But they have edited slightly differently here. George jetted off to the Caribbean with a demo stashed in his briefcase. In those days, you'd have an acetate, a little pressing of the record, and George went out to the Bahamas or somewhere where they were filming it, and they were sort of on the beach somewhere, so he organized to bring a little record player and this disc, and he played it to Cubby Broccoli, who said, he said, that's nice, George. That's a nice demo. When are you going to make the finished record? <laughs> George said, that is it. Apparently, the producers had imagined that McCartney would write the song for someone else to perform. In fact, there's a scene in the film where the song is covered by the soul singer B.J. Arnon. Did they cut out something which is very clearly a mistake these days? 
Yes. So going back to the Bond thing, they talk about George Martin running off to a beach with an acetate in a briefcase. I, I like this sort of building of tension. They're doing the owned Bondian thing, aren't they? Exactly. And so they then go into uh, George Martin gets the beach and someone gets them a record player and he plays this disc. And so what they have McCartney saying is that when are you going to make the finished record? They have then cut in Paul Muldoon saying they thought I'd written it for somebody else to sing and BJ Arnott actually sang it in the film. Now, I mean, the version of the story that Paul has borrowed from George Martin is that they really didn't think that the finished record was going to be a wings thing as it is here. It's like, Oh, they just thought that this was a demo that Paul was going to play, uh, record the final version. So it's like, what are you trying to say here? We know now that uh, this paperwork proving that the idea originally was that they wanted a version by Paul. And then they wanted a cover version of the or version of the song by somebody else as well because that was what was in the contract that's been dug up. The fifth dimension is uh, who they actually originally wanted for the film, not for the single, for the film. I could see them being in that bit, yeah. And then they kind of go off on, oh, you know, this is a great record, and, and how McCartney's rough vocals and having a rock song as a Bond thing was such a tremendous new piece piece of work and something new for the Bond franchise. I can see what they mean by that. I suppose it's just taking it to the next level. Although I like what Paul is saying there. Well, well, I don't rate it too much, which is interesting because I always thought that he loved the song. I always thought that he loved the song as well. I mean, it's strange how things change because I remember an interview a number of years ago where Paul was saying about this song that he liked playing it because when he gets to the middle eight section of the reggae bit, that's where he thinks about Linda. But a lot of people put it on their lists, even top of their list. And it's like, okay, you know, maybe it's another one of those uh, wildlife things. You know, whilst I didn't rate it too much alongside, like, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, which I thought were very Bondian, I wasn't sure where the mine was. But a lot of people put it on their lists and put it top of the lists, actually, of Bond songs, so... It was the first rock and roll Bond song. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, somebody else likes it, so that's cool. Guns N' Roses certainly liked it. And we go into that because Muldoon brings it up and Paul gives his usual. I I always like people doing my songs. He he gets paid for it. And he has a a little funny there with Paul Muldoon. I was very happy that they'd done it. I I always like people doing my songs. I don't know about you, but if someone decides to recite one of your poems, it's a great compliment, you know. Of course it is. And in my case, it pays. (laughs) <laughs> How do you know it doesn't play in my case? Oh. I don't know. I don't know. And he, he mentions the pyrotechnics when they do it live as well, which both of us have um, experienced. The amazing thing, particularly in light of the story we get, which is going to end this uh, episode, is you know if you're in the first oh, 20, 25 rows, you can really feel the pyrotechnics when they go. Those flash pots 
are hot. Yes. I mean, I wasn't that close when I saw him. Although saying that, I could still feel it, even almost at the back of Birmingham Arena. When I saw uh, a different band completely, I saw I Maiden uh, somewhere. They had pyrotechnics, and I was closer, and I certainly felt those as well. Anywhere on the floor, you can actually feel it a little bit. In Mexico City, there's the Mexico City reference, folks. We were just kind of at the edge of where you could really feel the heat coming off the pyrotechnics. You really need that in the winter, don't you, when it's a bit cold and you're outside and then suddenly have the pyrotechnics to warm everybody up. It was a treat in San Francisco, yes. Even though it was summer when I saw him in San Francisco. As Mark Twain says, the, the coldest winter he ever experienced was a summer in San Francisco. So Paul kind of ends it with, when we're going around, I often look at the people, especially in the front row, it's great to watch them. And, and he kind of goes off about how, oh, you know, the, the ones who don't know, they're, they're sitting there talking to each other and all of a sudden he goes, whoosh, and everybody just sort of looks up. Well, it's a big show for us. It's extremely exciting. We have pyrotechnics. Extremely dangerous. It can it can get a little hot up there, yeah, I must say. But our pyrotechnics guy, who in whom we trust, is called Shaky. <laughs> <laughs> There's a clue. And the thing I think I like most about it is that as as we know the explosion's about to happen, the big first explosion. So we often look at the people, particularly in the front row, who are like blithely going along, like live and then boom, oh! And you just, it's great to just watch them. Um, They look at each other and oh, oh, my God, and they're shocked. We did it in early days and there was an explosion. And I I suddenly noticed as we started it, there's like a 90 year old woman, very old, in, in the front row. I like the fact that he knows how old she is. I suddenly noticed as we started Live and Let Die, there was a 90-year-old woman in the front row. My immediate comment is, Paul, you're not that far from 90. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Then he continues, oh, uh, we're going to kill her, although he puts a little expletive in there. Yes, he does. Uh, And then he he ends it with, uh, and then when we, we got to it, I looked down and she's loving it. I That's really kind of nice. Yeah, that is nice. You see, age is not a, an issue, you see. <laughs> and uh, what I what I mentioned in a previous show, what I have learned, the one and only song during the whole show where Paul uses his IEMs is Live and Let Die. They have to be noise-canceling IEMs, inner ear monitors. And if you look... He does the same thing at the end of every show, puts his fingers to his ears after the final flash pot is going off. I always thought that was just kind of a little move, but what he's actually doing is he's removing his IEMs. Okay. So it's like, is it really that loud? Are you really doing this every show? We got some good close-up pictures from, from Mexico City, and you can see him actually taking him out. It's like, oh, that's the deal. Yes. Ear protection, you see. Protecting his hearing 
And with all that noise up there, I'm, I'm sure he just cannot hear the regular monitors. Absolutely. All right. So that is episodes five through eight of the Life and Lyrics podcast. We're going to be back in a couple weeks and finish out series one. As mentioned, series two is coming, although we don't know exactly when, sometime in the next handful of months. I'm hoping for March, but who knows? We'll find out. If you couldn't tell, we're both very pleased with this series. And for Martin to say that as the guy who does the podcast about podcasts, that's saying something. It is. And I apologize for anyone who's been following that I've been, I've posted up that I've been listening to these again to research. I'm really sorry. I've not got Paul Muldoon on my show. I wish I did. All right. Like you say, we will be back in two weeks to finish up this series. Next week, Lonnie Pena is back. So our reviewer on Apple Podcasts can listen again. That's true. You'll get all the listens there. Talk to you soon. Take care. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. In this case, I think one of the effects it has is that there's a sense of a great continuum right the way through Paul McCartney's career. And so one is delighted, you know, from something from, the, from his teenage years, from his uh, Beatles years, and from more recently. And it has that effect. And there are only 154. How did you choose them? Was there a culling process? Well, you know, I mean, the truth about this was that I was... It was put to me that we could do a book about my lyrics. And I sort of said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I didn't really do an awful lot more uh, until Paul and I met up. And the idea then was that we would just talk to each other. And Paul would say to me, well, wait, what about this? Or what about that line? What did you think? And working with him as a poet, it was interesting for me because we were really analyzing the lyrics and where did it come from and stuff. And I think more things came out that way. Um, but really my th contribution was just to talk for five years to this man. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is quite an achievement. It was quite an achievement. Well. I tell you one thing. There's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs>